Welcome to the Eyes Wide Open Life podcast. I'm Rocco Jarman. Welcome back to the podcast. Um, the reason for this little prelude that I've recorded and I'm going to be inserting in front of the main uh, chunk that I've already recorded is I'm giving myself permission to do this sorts of thing. So I'm going to take the podcast down. The version that you'll hear online is one that has this um, preamble in front of it because I believe more in getting started versus sort of um, delivering or over-engineering for perfection. And I really believe that. But by the same token, I also believe sincerely uh, soliciting feedback, taking that feedback on board and doing whatever I need to do to make the content as relatable and enjoyable as possible. So the podcasts and the whole reason for me doing this is definitely not because I have this itching need to be heard. Um, <clears throat> it's because I've got some ideas which I believe are extremely important and some uh, insights on our current levels of discomfort and the challenges that we're facing as um, individuals and in our society at the moment. And it's because these subjects are specifically so hard to talk about that it really pays me to make sure that whenever I am talking about it, I'm doing it in the most personable and digestible way possible. So I'm really committed to improve these sorts of things, and that's the reason why I've, I've put this little preamble in place. So I got some feedback, and the main body of the podcast is um, a bit technical, and there's definitely room for improvement in my engagement and speaking style and not enough personal examples. So I'm not going to re-record it. I'm going to kind of leave it as it is and let it stand the test of time. And if anyone's ever really interested, maybe we'll, we'll have conversations about it and unpack it a bit. So I've been involved in public thinking and the public discourse arena online for over four years now. Um, and I've got some observations around the dysfunction of how we're engaging as a society. This should be really clear to everybody right now, whether you're the kind of person who prefers to sort of insulate your, your feed and, and use your feed just for entertainment value and for sharing pictures of your breakfast and your family. I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But there's a, uh, a few ugly storms of disconnection brewing, which are causing a lot of breakdown of public discourse, and it's um, causing friction and distrust and disagreement on virtually everything that we're starting to that we care about and it's starting to really impact um, even the people that are trying to look away or you might be in the second group which find themselves polarized along an argument uh, this could be along anything whether you do or don't believe in climate change or you do or don't believe a 16 year old girl from um, <clears throat> from Norway should be telling uh, anyone how to um, pick up our game um, but if we find ourselves on one on any side of a polarized argument, we need to acknowledge that at this stage, this is everything. Everything is factionized and polarized. There's not one thing which there is absolute bipartisan support for in, in the world. So I've got clear ideas on how to improve this and really, more importantly, why to understand these. And the fact that there's some real existential risk to our well-being um, and the whole human experience we call life in the 21st century, if we don't find ways to start improving our public and personal conversations. So there's a quote um, by Sam Harris, which goes something along the lines of, 
conversation is really the only tool that we have as human beings to arrive at consensus and cooperation and connection. And when conversation fails for whatever reason, what always ensues is disconnection and violence. So whether it's physical, emotional, or verbal violence, but it's, it's never anything good. <clears throat> so let's imagine there was a fire and while the fire itself in this scenario, the fire itself was unavoidable. So something that, you know, the, the, the nearby bush or forest is really on fire. <clears throat> Damage to life is, un- is avoidable. If we can coordinate people quickly and um, uh, effectively enough, And in this scenario, it's possible to minimize damage to property and to stuff, but it's not possible to avoid it altogether. Some stuff's going to cop it. The the fire brigade can't get everywhere. So in this scenario, we would need the ability to call the fire brigade. We would need to make sure they had access to uh, equipment, training, um, physical access to the areas. They need to be going we would need ways to prioritize how to tackle the fire and how to face acceptable losses. We would need, um, in the interest of saving the buildings or the areas of the town or the village that are most valuable to all, and and, and we would need to um, prioritize saving lives and then also prioritizing which lives we would prefer to save over others if we're faced with, let's say, an unfortunate or a nece- but a necessary choice. We would also need ways to coordinate relief effort and a clear understanding of the needs of the people that were affected and how best to help them. So you often get in in floods or fire scenarios, people send the wrong shit. And then instead of just having to deal with the absolute fallout and human tragedy and need and the cost to life and all the rest of it, somebody else is now dealing with this absolutely this absolute mess of a logistic challenge of trying to understand what to do with all the canned food, which nobody needs. Uh, what they really needed was generators and blankets. Um, but communication breaks down, coordination breaks down, goodwill is not the, the problem. It's really cooperation and coordination that's the problem. And the thing that's the problem in arriving at that is consensus and empowerment. So we need to all have consensus so that we're empowering the right people at the right time in as quickly as possible to get the maximum out, out, outcome. Now take any of those statements that I've mentioned now and consider the following. Either as the fire approaches or while the fire is right on top of the town or as the firefighters are fighting the fire as it now has moved on and crept towards the next town and we need to start focusing on immediate triage efforts and, and to plan the rebuilding and all the rest of it. We need to rely on consensus every single step of the way And we're trying to optimize the support and optimize the goodwill from everyone concerned so we can make sure we're effective as possible in restoring lives and avoiding damage and all the rest of it. That sounds reasonable. But not one of the challenges that I've mentioned here are best managed by our current and default ways of public engagement. They're either too slow We're not informed of all the necessary things. We don't trust experts. Somebody will call themselves an expert and some conspiracy theorists will will shoot them down. Sometimes the conspiracy theorists are aware of an actual challenge or an actual problem or somebody who is actually acting in bad faith. But because 
we are unable to listen to them or they are unable to pick apart their own fact from fiction, we tend to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And we're engaged in debate, argument, discussion, challenges all the time. We are being asked all the time, whether it's in our individual relationships at work as teams, nationally, um, villages, school councils, um, clubs, nationally, online. We're being asked to speak up. We're being asked to concede. We're being asked to endorse points or arguments or decisions all the time. These are in our love relationships, our friendships, our professional relationships, and any relationships we have with any village or tribe context, all the way up to social interaction we're having directly or indirectly at the moment on social media. And this is all already happening. And there are a number of values that we need to lift up, habits we need to address, blind spots in our own habits that we really would be better off noticing. And styles of arguing and debating which are constructive. And there are real facts about how we're programmed through our human nature, disinformed by media accidentally or deliberately, and empowered by social media, which gets us the opposite of every single thing we might care about in the way in which we would need to cooperate to solve any of the problems we face, which can only be done via collaboration and cooperation. And we've got a habit of assuming uncharitable intent or outright stupidity or wickedness in anyone that we find ourselves in contention with, whether it's another person or another group. And this particular episode is aimed at shining a light on the ways in which we're failing and likely to keep failing, having constructive arguments with anyone. And to give you eight reminders of what to notice in yourself and others and what to start practicing when engaging in, even if you're just listening as a third party to a debate or an argument or a set of arguments, which you'll be finding examples of all the time. Who do I believe? Who do I believe in how to feed my children the right food? Who do I believe in um, which exercises are best? Who do I believe in which medicines are best? Who do I believe in whether masks are effective or not? on whether uh, the Democrats or the Republicans are going to be the most good or the most bad for the people that have just come out of an election. How do I believe anything if I can't listen and start picking apart good argument from bad argument, good intent from bad intent, um, and all the subconscious and unconscious ways in which we make our understanding of other people or articulation of our own th- values just so difficult to share. So I've got a lot of contentious ideas um, and good ideas, and the the episode is designed to give you the tools to be able to hear them and get the most out of the transmission and not be caught with the things that are catching us all in all of our public discourse. So um, I hope you enjoy that. Okay, getting straight into the this episode, um, I thought the best place to start is a prefix I've been working on um, on my book, 
and it's called the the eight invitations. <clears throat> the eight invitations is designed to be a set of invitations for the reader, or in this case, the listener, on how to grapple with all the subsequent episodes <clears throat> or the body of my work to follow, to give what I believe is really worthy content the best chance to be heard, for it to land, and possibly even make a lasting difference. So as usual, this podcast episode is recorded more or less in a single sitting with more focus on content and engagement than on editing for perfection. And so there's going to be a lot of imperfect language. Um, I'm going to be sort of ponderously thinking or fighting for the right word, but bear with me. The eight invitations is still something that's um, busy being worked on. The the inherent welcome in each of these invitations applies perennially, actually, to every person who claims they would like their life to be better, who want, therefore, the world to be better, and who want to drive more fulfillment and meaning out of their own lives. Lives which, by definition, are reliant in greater part than we wish to acknowledge at times to um, the vast weight of causality which exists outside of ourselves. So this is the relationships and the world at large that we have. Um, In the cumulative math of all that there is in terms of life, time, mass, will, energy, agency, intent, needs, the dividing line that makes up the self that we orientate the project of our lives around, even in close relationship to others, is still a very, very small measure against the sheer enormity of what constitutes everything else in the universe. And what I'm going to read now, insofar as we all have the ability to consider their value and deliberately practice their implications. But they're really also imperatives because more than just invitations, because in the absence of their consideration and practice, we get precisely the state of unhappy mess that we're facing collectively at the moment, where despite any indifference to the suffering of others, boils down when we get to it, to the fact in history and in life that some people were free to actualize and others were not. And that's a subject I'll spend some time some time covering. The first one is cognitive biases and critical thinking. So if we ever get to the point as a society where we stop chasing the media's fake rabbit around the dog track of disquiet and outrage for long enough to determine how we would prefer our society to run, which beliefs to rethink and which to enshrine as the most imperative, critical thinking has to be at the very top. So while humans have been responsible for really expounding the most beautiful ideas and distilling the most profound philosophies, for the most part, our human brains have really evolved to be efficient as we navigated originally through a hostile environment of um, growing complexity and only small networks of potential collaborators, our original um, tribes or or clans. This was done to favor reaction to signs of potential danger and therefore possible demise ahead of remembered ways to find and secure our needs and pleasures. 
an interns an in turn ahead of an attempt to preserve energy in the pursuit of the prior to. So that's referring to the <clears throat> the motivational triad, which is a fact of life of all life really. Um, and we can recognize this in human behavior and pretty much most uh, animal behavior that we can observe. So it's the the drive to avoid pain, the drive to seek out pleasure and the drive to conserve energy, which is basically to do the previous two as efficiently as possible. So <clears throat> why do we um, seek to avoid pain? And that's the primary of the motivational triad is because that pain is a um, reliable precursor towards injury and injury is a reliable precursor towards death. Why do we seek out, why are we driven to seek out pleasure? Because we've been programmed again, um, like the apes we are, to do the things we need to do to ensure the survival of this organism and the survival of the species, the continuation of the DNA, which is procreation, seeking out company for safety, and um, getting hold of food. It's our basic, um, basic drives. <clears throat> the bottom half of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. <clears throat> so the resulting effect was a set of evolutionary traits, which we collectively refer to as cognitive biases, which are in short, the kinds of algorithms, which our brains evolved via trial and error to allow us not always perfectly, to, but allowed us to survive by making quick decisions, which did not always need to be right. So long as they were right enough, most of the time. <clears throat> so our inability to think critically is well studied at this stage. It's well understood by academics and scientists, and there's many people that have made it their life work to understand this. But for the rest of us, this inability or our failure to factor in our own cognitive biases in our interactions with the world is something we are vaguely aware of at best as an abstract academic level and almost never really personally aware of without exception, completely unaware of whilst we're actually busy doing it. So even if we're aware that we have cognitive biases or we lack the, um, the ability or we, we are given to bouts of poor critical thinking, we're only sort of aware of it academically, but when we write in the throes of it, it's the furthest thing from our mind, um, <clears throat> which incidentally is one of the, um, the utilities of mindfulness. So the reliability of our cognitive biases and our other predictable ways in which we think and behave as a species is so well known that social media giants and online markets of Silicon Valley have, for the past dozen years or so, made it their business to bake the gamification of our behavior into the software platforms, which they've given us for free, because we really became the product. And through the same platforms, they aggregate personal data and seemingly innocuous metadata. And they apply machine learning and other intuitive algorithms to analyze our behaviors and our demographics. And when you apply this um, understanding of our predictability, it's used to manipulate us to either buy things impulsively, want things impulsively, react emotionally, and um, impulsively to keep us engaged with their platforms. Um, these organizations sell this information and they extrapolate understanding of us between themselves um, 
they give that to political parties and to other third parties, either to influence our thinking and behavior or some other pretty um, clandestine and equally dishonest purposes. So the sheer size and success of those industries and that business model should be enough to convince even the most skeptical listener that the phenomenon of cognitive bias and impulsive human behavior is worth keeping in mind. The listener, I really want to encourage, therefore, to keep this in mind so that when the red flag of argument or annoyance invariably gets raised involuntarily within, take this as a fairly reliable indicator that one of your many cognitive biases has subsumed your ability to think critically. It's not to say I'm always going to be right. Um, I'm certainly try, uh, for the most part, uh, to be consistent insofar as applying um, clarity of thought and um, firmness of thought. And I don't just brain fart my ideas on here without spending um, some time going over them. But um, <clears throat> that being said, uh, aside from the, the, the obvious always um, human uh, invitation to debate and argue, uh, I, I've given some of these ideas some real thoughts. So when a flag pops up, um, at least there's an invitation to yourself to go and, and ask yourself, is this one of my cognitive biases at play? And there's a number of them, and you can look them up. Um, but, but we're not the clearest thinkers. We just aren't. And it, it behooves us to remember that often um, and to question what our point is in, in, in trying to um, engage in debate or discourse with somebody else. So although dishonesty and lack of charity and presumption of fault are common, it still remains that conflation is responsible for more chaos ensuing within the crucible of well-meant exchange than any real dishonesty or the lack of charity or a stubbornness born from the presumption of fault. So the second invitation is trying to understand. So truly bad ideas do exist. Um, we're facing a series of significant challenges as individuals and in every form of cooperating, we are trying to rely on for connection um, and trying to rely on for survival and for meaning. And these are as a result of the unconscious compulsive pursuits of what were originally well-meant, but ultimately flawed ideas. So, Trying to understand is an act of patience and courage. Trying to find fault for the sake of argument is at this stage an intellectually bankrupt pursuit, which outside the singular noble pursuit of attempting to moderate for outright falsehood or the danger of truly bad ideas, which of course is understandable, um, it's tantamount to trolling and this is what is muddying a lot of public discourse and public thinking at the moment. And we really need public discourse and public thinking. So this is not to dissuade any healthy debate or mature and good faith challenge of my ideas, but really to invite uh, the listener to find the best compass of intent within themselves and use that to orienteer as much through the landscape of their own prejudices and fear as through the landscape of the ideas that I'm presenting. 
This podcast is really attempting to float a lot of new ideas. And the value of these ideas, I believe, is so critically important right now that the listener um, is invited in the interest of successful transmission to try and approach my ideas openly, wrestle with new ideas bravely, and then really think about the cost of the treasure of work or wisdom remaining locked behind the door of either guarded imagination or courage, robbed by scorn or robbed by outrage, for both of which the burden unlocking lies solely with the listener. And the quote that I I share, my quote that I share most often with people around the subject is that it's, it's easier to try and understand somebody than to try and be understood by somebody. And the problem at the moment is that the people trying to be understood are doing all the work. So the third invitation is about the um, correct purpose, intent, or way to debate. Um, A debate can only really be successful if the object is to determine what is right, never who is right. Debates devolve into arguments not for lack of facts or for lack of participation. They fail for lack of goodwill. If either party, deliberate or unconsciously, either out of fear or of the consequences, fear of the consequences or um, some unconscious bias, cannot stand to yield a point, however well made, the debate is always going to devolve into an argument. We can see evidence of this pretty much everywhere at the moment. The schools and practice of sophistry and rhetoric, um, which are two practices we get from ancient Greece, were hugely successful in their time. But for all their success, eventually got something of a bad name, as the footnotes of history can attest to. The, the, The precise cause of this was the realization in hindsight that the speaking and debating skills they taught and imparted contributed directly to a pretty serious miscarriage of justice. Um, an outcome that was achieved of um, that was achieved insofar as a man responsible for, let's say, cheating his neighbor in some way could win the court case through the skillful unseating of his opponent by any number of tactics. And this was done by either undermining the character of the opponent publicly, the use of deliberate conflation, um, linguist, linguistic sleights of hand, and other reliable employment of, of various techniques to impress the crowd. So humor was one of them as well. <clears throat> Under the rubric of rhetoric and sophistry, debates often become a function of entertainment value. And no sane person in the interest of a fair outcome is genuinely interested in the whim of the crowd to determine fairness. So for entertainment value, obviously it it, uh, carries a lot of um, value. But if you were the person that was suffering a terrible injustice, and just think about this honestly for a second, and you were trying to argue the facts of some predicament or some case to appeal to the, the... the justice of the crowd or the conviction of the crowd and you were flustered or you were not the most confident public speaker or the person that you were debating against or arguing against was a comedian or a, um, a career uh, politician. 
you wouldn't want to be at the mercies of the crowd to ensure that justice gets done. So the listener is invited to remain mindful of most of the most reliable ways to determine even what might be uncomfortable and inconvenient facts. If in fact the object of consideration is to determine what rather than who is right. So the fourth, the fourth invitation for the listener is to consider the poverty of language and um, come with a presumption of goodwill. So the listener should know that although as much care as could be mustered has been taken to find a balance between subtlety of the message and the digestibility to a range of listeners, by which definition at the time of, of recording this is already so phenomenally varied. The listener should also be aware that as much care as could be put together, given the short time available, has already been applied to ensure that absolutely nothing that is being said here, nor the reason that this podcast is being produced, is done with anything but the deepest of love for the most disenfranchised voices of our time. It's already my honest reason for doing this. A rampant dysfunctional social media and increasing levels of seemingly irreconcilable outrage at the moment can already quite easily attest to the fact that this is of the very nature of language to be open to misconstrual. A state of suspicion, which, if we're completely honest with ourselves, is not something that was arrived at dishonestly. So there are actual um, disenfranchised people in our society and throughout our recent history that have got absolutely good cause for being um, pissed off and disillusioned with the status quo. Absolutely. But... So it's been from you know for my part as these the um, the host of this podcast. Um, it's on me myself to do my best, but the rest, however, must fall on you, the listener, to focus as little on what will be the inevitable failure of language to never trigger pain or suspicion. Otherwise, how are we ever going to pick up the thread of Theseus anywhere to lead us through a maze of complex and novel ideas? How do we cross a desert of misunderstanding on the backs of stubborn mules of existing language as we meander between these oases of old ideas? The ask of you, the listener, then, is to forgive any linguistic dysmorphia, which I'm going to be um, inadvertently guilty of, which so delights the growing crescendo of... Um, outrage and cancel culture and deplatforming that exists out there because fate has conspired in that case, if I'm guilty of it, to outwit my limited skill with language. And it wouldn't be through my lack of trying. So this is the fifth invitation. Um, this is quite a, a lengthy one and it's quite technical. Um, and it's, it's, it's not entirely my own idea. It's, it's an idea which I have borrowed off of um, Sam Harris. And uh, I noticed this. He just articulated it a lot better than I did. A lot better. Um, 
the contention is that there's two kinds of questions and this is about the misplaced trust we have in our most effective systems. So in the sphere of all our human endeavors, we, we've always really sought to pursue two key kinds of questions. The first kind of question is how best to do a thing well. And the second is which things we should be doing well. And of course, then there's a inadvertent question about how to prioritize them. So the first one again is how to best solve for a problem, which things should we be focusing our energy and attention on? Um, how to how to go about doing that? How to go about solving for something? And the second question is which of the things should we be solving for? Which of the things should we be investing our energy and attention on? So one of the largest drivers of modern times is the shared ideology practice. Um, shared ideology and practice and the economics of the free or open market, what we call capitalism. Um, and that really seeks to answer questions in the domain of capture and retention of material wealth, primarily, um, at the cost of almost anything else that stands in its way. If a moral concern is encountered, this is raised as an afterthought always against the tide of momentum going the other way in favor of growing and protecting market share and protecting wealth and protecting profit. So it's clearly flawed, um, but it's proven to be pretty inexhaustibly surprising regarding the level of ingenuity and effectiveness um, the free market has for addressing the first kind of question, um, which is how to address certain challenges. I mean, we've got kind of problems solved. We didn't even know we had problems for the fact that we have social media, the fact we have streaming services, the fact that the internet is such a phenomenon, the fact that um, computer gaming rigs are so ridiculously powerful at the moment, pretty much every need we have, even the most arbitrary needs are taken care of in excess by the amount of technology and innovation that's been applied. So the flaws in capitalism become compounded and exponentially accentuated when the inherent flaws themselves are left unmitigated. So specifically because of the oversight that our society shows in relegating to the same flawed systems, the second kind of question, and that is which problems it should be prioritizing. So our leaps forward in technology and in innovation are never keeping pace with our um, calm, common sense or our morality. These always have to be sort of negotiated and fought for afterwards. And they always get negotiated and fought for against this like um, prevailing groundswell of um, primacy of profit and primacy of market share. So it's always going to come in second. There's a similar economy that's centered around the capture and retention of our attention, uh, a set of drivers which have been expertly sort of pursued by the media industry. And the media have become 
efficient at the capture and retention of our attention to such a phenomenal degree of success that we can see the wide-scale derangement of politics, um, trust in expertise, dismissal of facts, um, polarization of humankind along almost every conceivable axis of opinion and understanding. Um, and then if you add to this the, the expert degree to which the human psychology is understood and how this understanding is employed in the service of retaining our attention, it's precisely what can lead a person down a rabbit hole of engagement on a medium such as YouTube or, or Reddit, if anyone's lost an evening to that. The core of the problem, again, as with um, the free market or with capitalism, was while the current system is nothing short of expert at answering the first kind of question, it's been given unchecked control to determine also the second question, for which it literally has no suitability. So media deciding how best to report, how best to serve us information, but they also get to decide which information to serve us and which news stories to report on and how to go about keeping certain facts um, under the surface and promoting certain aspects to drive outrage and drive um, engagement, not necessarily to serve us with the best information for making decisions. <clears throat> So the outcomes of both of these oversights have become increasingly obvious, but in their effective capture of our collective imaginations and attention, um, we need to now think about the third such model, which is democracy. And the fact that they might need to be challenged has become a problem for which the solution undermines the very value that the models are ostensibly delivering well. So <clears throat> what that means is if we then found out that um, the free market economy and um, journalism and the media are not serving us well, the main ways that we would be able to address that is through our democratic system, our democratic process. But again, democracy is another system like the previous two that suffers from the same problem. Democracy similarly is well designed to drive consensus on questions of the former nature. And those are um, how to go about solving problems, right? But in the wake of our gamed values through the free market and the gamed attention through mass media, the populace that need to exercise their say in the selection of options have very little insights on precisely which options to advocate for. So it's almost like we've been deliberately kept in the dark or accidentally kept in the dark. And the listener here is sort of invited to acknowledge that regards our trust of any ideology or system based on its apparent and proven effectiveness on how to solve for problems, a blind spot exists of its absolute poverty of merits in determining which problems to prioritize solving for. And a perfect example of this is the phenomenology of Brexit. <clears throat> People voted to leave the European Union, and after the vote, the referendum, it, they started Googling what the implications were. So people were being gamed by the politicians 
to lean towards a certain choice and they weren't even entirely informed what that choice actually meant and what the implications were. And this sort of pattern is playing itself out all the time. So five down, three to go. This is number six. Six is about the, this is actually a, a really useful <clears throat> skill, which any listener would be able to take immediately and put it in your kit bag of trying to have a meaningful uh, conversation or debate or argument, whether it's with somebody at work, with one of your kids, um, with a spouse or a friend. Things get confused very, very quickly and things get emotional very, very quickly. And one compass or scalpel we can use is the following. When a point is made or an issue is raised, we often find ourselves like almost scratching our heads like, how did we get here? And the very often the phenomenon that's happening is something that's that's, that's explicable by, by the following statement. It might be relevant and worth arguing if only it were true. And conversely, it might be true and worth arguing if only it were relevant. Now, aside from sounding cute, it actually really is helpful. So neither party in a debate need to be seeking a mutually beneficial outcome. However, if at least one person is genuinely seeking a mutually beneficial outcome, the conflict is not removed because the ultimate values, while shared, might not be prioritized in the same way on both sides of an argument. So a single silver lining on the dark cloud of our time in our lives spent arguing with teenagers is the final understanding, which is not obvious at the time, that the source of genuine discontent in a debate or a conflict of ideas arises not because the two people have an innately clashing set of values, but rather our subjective series of wounds and triggers and the misalignment through differences in maturity and perspective of where shared values should be prioritized. In arguments which play out on a stage set this way, even in good faith, um, we can lose a whole argument because of a common blind spot we encounter on the back of an assumption. So the assumption, of course, is that all parties are invested in good faith or hold good faith as the primary merit worth investing in. In short, where the person that you're arguing with basically needs to win, not out of a sense of sophistry or rhetoric, but just because they cannot trust our good faith and cannot argue the facts on our level in this event, like the surest way um, in managing the debate is to run every counter argument through the twin gauntlet of these two conditions. What you say is true or may be true, but either way, is it really relevant to the material question or issue being debated here? Or what you say would be relevant and directly impact the material facts of the debate if only they were completely unfalsifiable? So I'll say that again, the, the scalpel or the compass that I use is what you say is true or may be true, but either way, is it actually relevant to the material question or issue that we're busy debating? Or what you say would be relevant 
and directly impact the material facts of the debate if only they were completely unfalsifiable. And the listener then is invited to keep this this sort of uh, compass or the scalpel in place and then let each of their own arguments and misgivings be checked accordingly before too quickly standing to join the internal crowd of opinion, which would dismiss my ideas or my, my, um, my concepts too quickly or unfairly. So again, that's not a, um, a wish to never be contradicted or wish to never be debated or an expectation that I'm going to be believed outright. But at least I'd like this to apply if the argument or the debate is coming my way. So number seven, um, invitation number seven is supervenience and the simplicity on the far side of complexity. So there was a, um, a man called Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. He was an American jurist who served as an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States. And he's credited with the following quote. For the simplicity on this side of complexity, I wouldn't give you a fig. But for the simplicity on the other side of complexity, for that, I would give you anything I have. This is probably one of my favorites. I'm going to ramble a bit about this. The easiest way to understand this is to come at it via the concept of supervenience. And you, this is a, 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 an idea you can look up on Wikipedia or Google or whatever the case. The, the best way it was explained to me was if you get a um, a book or a play, um, I think the, the example I use most often is Romeo and Juliet by Shakespeare. You can sit somebody down that doesn't have any real contextual understanding of life in, um, in, in Italian city-state around the era when Shakespeare purportedly wrote Romeo and Juliet, or the social norms which would allow for a 14-year-old girl to be um, being courted by a slightly older boy for what, what, what this concept of a family feud might be between the two families, etc. But with very little background context, you can pretty much explain these two families, you can explain it in human terms. You can explain the love component. You can explain the feud component. You can explain the parental approval or disapproval. You can explain the, 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 the gathering, the ball, the, um, the actions of the priest, the, 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 um, the tragedy about their love being uh, unrequited when the one assumes the other one is dead or the tragedy when they, um, they, they end up uh, killing themselves uh, needlessly. And it's understandable at a human level. But as with everything, we get in, invited or challenged to look at the most fundamental aspect of reality. And, and, and we use science to get at that. And, and, and some of our facts that we're being hammered with in the face, they, um, they, they seem sound 
And this is where the flaw lies, I believe, because they chase the simplicity on the near side of complexity. And this is what I mean. So if I take that Shakespeare play and I say, no, 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 this is not the most fundamental way um, of analyzing this scientifically. I'm going to do a full inventory of the chemical compounds because you know, this is just all paper and ink and it's, but really what, 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 what's the chemical compounds that this is made of? And I do a full inventory of it and I write that down in a computer program or on a, um, a set of journals. I, I would fill up a, a library with the data of the chemical arrangements, um, the chemical bonds of the glue, the string, the ink, the page, the leather binding, you name it. And then I would just be proudly finished with my work after many, many years. And uh, a physicist might come past and go, no, 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 that's not the most fundamental um, way of getting at the nature of reality. You've got to go deeper. You've got to go to an atomic or molecular level. And we would go deeper than the chemical molecules and we would look at the, um, the atomic architecture of this book of Romeo and Juliet. And we could track every single atom and all the electrons and all the atomic valencies and the atomic weights and the, the arrangements. And it would be a volume of information which would be so complex. And sooner or later, a quantum physicist will come along and start arguing about subatomic particles. And you can get ever smaller and ever more precise. And yet, however more precise, however smaller you get in the scale of um, granularity that you're trying to analyze, you're not actually getting any closer to understanding the story or the human implications of Romeo and Juliet. And my... my um, idea or my concept that I'm trying to float is that there is a, so, so, so the relationship that all of those things have, the book, the ink, the chemicals, the, the atoms, the, the, the subatomic particles, etc. these things all exist without contradicting each other, but they exist at different levels of supervenience. So the one is supervenient to the other. And I think there's a principle which we don't pay enough attention to that there are ways and levels to get the best cash value out of um, understanding of a thing or a concept or a problem or a conundrum or a phenomenon. And we are too monotonous or too one-tracked in our um, in the way that we try and pry the, the floorboards of meaning up and the way that we try to get to the bottom of things tends to be too uniform and trusting of driving ever deeper or driving into um, the, the, the smallest level of granularity. And the, the other way of explaining this is if you understand something fully, there is an art to simplifying it. Um, which a lot of the poetry I write, a lot of the philosophy I write, are distilled basically down into a single quote um, of, of just a few lines. But it's no good sprouting these pithy quotes if one hasn't understood the phenomenon fully 
that you're trying to explain or account for. So, so much of our news, so much of our arguments, so much of our conflation, so much of our disagreement with each other is based on simplicity, which we try to drive out on the near side of complexity. We don't understand all the nuance and complexity that we need to, to honestly wrestle with the subject matter. <clears throat> but that's not to say that there isn't a simple answer that exists on the far side of complexity once we understand all the moving parts. And this invitation is fundamentally about that. So the final invitation is um, really an invitation to reflect on the caveat or the risks that we face in our failure to value connection. So the final ask is for the listener to consider what the implications are of failing to really value connection. The potential impact of dismissing the aforementioned, um, the other seven invitations. So our compulsive habits, um, if left unconsciously unchecked, have a proven and predictable side effect of almost guaranteeing the kind of short-sightedness <clears throat> which has up until now um, and is likely in our future to guarantee us increasing levels of discomfort in the form of increasingly disordered society, um, a gradual or sudden cataclysmic world event that we cannot undo for lack of the kind of coordination that can only be facilitated through collaborative cooperation. So if we think about what's happening in the world at the moment in terms of fires, flooding, climate change, um, etc., these things cannot be solved at a national level. They really have to be solved at a global level. But even the willpower, political will that it takes for a single country to start making the right choices or collaborate internationally or globally means um, there's a concept of will and understanding that needs to align within a single um, democracy or a single nation. And we can't even really arrive at an agreement of whether we should or shouldn't wear masks in the case of an epidemic. So if you extrapolate that over our inability to sort of um, collaborate or cooperate on any front, there's a uh, sort of invitation to consider the warning there. So specifically, our reliability to remain immature as individuals and collectively as a species until discomfort visits us all equally in turn can really be moderated only by a sort of a shared valuing of the value of connection with and to other human beings and ultimately the entire ecosystem on which we're so inextricably dependent. Um, it's hard to understand how we turn a blind eye on this all the time, and yet we, we, we manage to do it. Um, and there's a lot that keeps us busy and keeps us um, our attention uh, monopolized. So some of the most dire challenges that we're facing um, as individuals, as societies, as a civilization as a whole, given the sheer amount of people and the implicit effort that will be required to affect any level of change can only be done 
at something approaching a global level of coordination and cooperation, critical mass in any system is required to affect change. And at that order of magnitude, it's no longer sufficient to simply not have bad intent in order to avoid harm. A critical mass is required to consciously and deliberately engage with a cooperation effort. And that requires a level of trust, if not in shared beliefs, but perhaps at least in shared values. Um, and I have a, a poem uh, called um, On the Coming Storm, and it opens with the following lines, sooner or later, one of the hurricanes of moral panic that hits the coast of our collective psyches with the floods of outrage they drive ahead of them is going to break the outdated levies of our social order, which were created in simpler times to weather far smaller storms. And that's a wrap on the first episode about the eight invitations. If there are any questions or any thoughts or constructive critique about the format or the delivery or about my ideas, you, I'd actually really like to hear from you. Um, there's a contact form on the contact page of eyeswideopenlife.org. Um, it's very easy to fill out and quick to do. I'd love to hear from you. I'd also really appreciate whatever, whichever pl format or platform you're listening to this on, if you can um, take the time to rate it. Um, reviews are a bit sort of cumbersome and time-consuming. If you've got the time or the energy to do that, I'd love that as well. And if there are anybody, if there's anybody in your life that you feel this content or the or this subject matter is uh, something that they would find enjoyable, I'd really appreciate you um, you passing it on. I think word of mouth at this stage of the game, with all the noise and all the podcasts and all the material out there, is really the only effective way to um, promote content of value like this. So um, yeah, I just appreciate you powering through what must be close to fifty minutes now. And I hope that you found some value from it. And I'd like to see you back in future episodes. Thanks. Thanks.